to the Tyndall Talks. It's the Tyndall Center's official podcast. I'm Renee from the Tyndall Center at the University of East Anglia. And today we are going to talk about post-COVID recovery. So now with the vaccine in sight, how can we rebuild economies in a greener way? Our guest for today is Professor Charlie Wilson from the Tyndall Center at the University of East Anglia. Hi, Charlie. Welcome to the Tyndall Talks. Hi, Renee. Thank you for having me. Hi, and um, I'm really glad that we have you here today because I know you've done some work on uh, green economy post-COVID, and it's something that our audience is really interested in. Uh, But before we start doing this discussion, can I ask you to introduce yourself first and maybe a bit of research um, on what you do, um, some insights or publications? Yeah, sure. So I work on climate change, obviously, um, but I work on the mitigation side. So how do we reduce uh, our greenhouse gas emissions to try and reach net zero by 2050, which is the UK legal target now? Um, So as an example of some of the research I've done in the last year or two, um, I work a lot on digital innovations and the potential that they may have to help us reduce emissions. Um, So we had a paper just recently in a journal called Annual Review, which looked at emission reduction potentials from a whole series of different digital innovations, anything from apps we might use for organising how we travel around cities, to apps we might use for ordering food, managing our energy at home and so on. And that piece of work showed that there's considerable potential for digital technology to help in uh, uh, us tackling climate change. Um, Another piece of work uh, that was published earlier this year in a journal called Science was looking at the relative advantages of smaller scale solutions to climate change compared to the sort of big mega technologies and and mega infrastructures like, for example, nuclear power. I'll talk a little bit more about this, I think, later in the podcast, because it's very relevant to the green recovery. And just one final piece of research that may be of interest is a study we did a year ago looking at how the world can reduce uh, warm, or sorry, can limit global warming to just one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels. This is the big ambition of the Paris Climate Agreement signed in 2015. Uh, and we show that it was possible to do this with uh, a real emphasis on both granular and or sorry, smaller scale and digital technology. So the two bits of empirical work I did fed into this scenario study. All right, thanks for your introduction. And um, you've already mentioned actually about some uh, impacts of COVID in society and the economy, as well as in you know the environment and climate change. And recently, I think we've had studies that show that during lockdown, there's been a carbon emissions uh, decrease, actually. So maybe let's talk about the main impacts of COVID. Um, any any impacts that you think are important to know by our listeners, uh, especially in climate change, CO2 emissions, energy demand? Yeah, so I mean, the impacts of COVID have obviously been absolutely staggering in all sorts of ways. Um, There's obviously been major impacts on the economy, on jobs. Uh, We're in a deep recession at the moment. Um, Different sectors of the economy have fared very differently. You know, huge losses of employment in, for example, hospitality. But some sectors like, say, food retail and delivery services have have gained. Um, But huge problems with inequality, 
uh, as a result of the um, impacts on the economy. And then focusing sort of more specifically on on the emissions, on, on what's happened to CO2 emissions. I mean, to some extent, these have gone dramatically down as a result of the recession. They tend to be fairly coupled with economic activity. But there are also obvious other specific reasons why emissions have gone down. About 7% this year uh, is the estimate by our Tyndall colleagues, uh, Corinne Lakede and the Global Carbon Project have just reported. Um, so obviously the travel restrictions during lockdowns has really hit transport. So compared to last year, for example, aviation is down about 60%. Uh, public transport, including rail, is down about 30 percent. Um, public, uh, some private transport cars are actually back up to uh, pre-lockdown levels, but so also are um, what we call active modes, so kind of getting around by walking or bike. Um, but new car sales are down, for example, about 10 percent. So this potentially could slow the transition to electric vehicles. Um, if you think about what's going on in buildings, we've obviously shifted activity fairly dramatically from offices and commercial spaces to homes. So we see um, gas and electricity use in homes going up uh, and that's not fully compensated for by electricity use in offices going down because offices typically will keep their, for example, their energy systems running to keep the building ventilated uh, and, 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 and warm uh, despite them being unoccupied. So it's a bit of a it's a bit of a sort of mixed bag in terms of the direct effects on energy demand. But overall, as I said, carbon dioxide emissions have gone down about 7% this year. Right. Uh, that's a lot of data, actually. So we can see that the lockdowns, the lockdowns all over the world globally have led to reduction of emissions in different sectors, as you've mentioned. Aviation, um, you know, a lot of the transport emissions have gone down. Um, is this something that we can continue? Is this uh, uh, achievable in terms of emissions reduction targets? Well, this is, I mean, this is in some ways the million dollar question and why the green recovery is so important. And, and we'll obviously come back to that in our in our conversation. But it's worth emphasizing that uh, examples historically of where emissions have dropped as a result of recession and the most uh, obvious recent example is after the global financial crisis. So the historical record tells us that those drops are transient or only short lived and that actually they follows uh, a rebound or a bounce back to pre crisis or pre shock CO2 emission trajectories. So this was shown very clearly by uh, Glenn Peters and others again involved in the global carbon project uh, after the global financial crisis. And the same story is also evident in earlier crises, including the oil shocks in the 1970s, for your listeners old enough to remember to remember that recession. So we're not on target to meet our climate change goals. Um, the UN just recently actually produced uh, their emissions gap report, which essentially compares how we're doing on emission reductions versus what we need to be doing in order to reach the Paris Climate Agreement goals. And they showed that, I mean, there's a lot of uncertainties and so on, but basically if you look at current commitments, uh, current uh, policies and so forth, we're on track to about a three degrees world where we need to really be keeping that down to one and a half degrees. So a huge gulf between what we need, where we need to be, even with this 7% hit on emissions from the pandemic uh, and, and 
huge gulf between that and where we need to get to to limit warming to safe levels. Yeah, that's right. So I think it's really important for us to talk about, you know, how do we continue reducing our emissions post COVID? And I guess it's a concept that everyone's been talking about. Um, what is green recovery? So, um, yeah, good question. I mean, green recovery essentially is a recovery from this uh, recession induced by the pandemic. Um, in a way which aligns the economic recovery and growth with our long-term decarbonisation targets. Um, so it's worth noting that a sort of a glimmer of hope uh, in, in all of this is the, the backdrop to the Paris Climate Agreement um, is that countries were uh, who submit long ago submitted plans for reducing emissions for this year, we're asked to update those plans. Um, and what we've seen around the world is a lot of countries pledging to reach net zero emissions, to reduce their emissions to very close to zero, uh, roughly around 2050, 2060, depending on the country. So currently now, um, hundred, according to the UN Emissions Gap Report, 126 countries accounting for 51% of global greenhouse gas emissions now have net zero goals. So this is a very impressive um, sort of architecture, if you like, of long term commitments. Now, there's big problems here, obviously. Only the UK and France have those enshrined in law. So there are a lot of sort of goals and targets and commitments without the legal backing quite yet. Um, and also those long term targets need to be translated into short term policies and actions. Um, and one of the key areas in which those short term actions can focus is on this idea of green recovery. So around the world, we are seeing absolutely unprecedented amounts of uh, fiscal spending or essentially amount of money being mobilized by governments to invest in keeping the wheels on their economies at national and global level. So uh, in a recent uh, IMF, Inter International Monetary Fund study, they quantified this at around about 12% of global GDP. Um, and in the G20, in, in the G20, the major economies, this is up to about 15% of GDP is being mobilized to support recovery. So the big question is, will that money being invested in the recovery also be green? So what do we mean by this? So just some specific examples would be that um, recovery measures which, which, which have to support rapid and employment intensive recovery can also support low carbon transition by, for example, investing in uh, renewable energy in low carbon transport like electric vehicles uh, in zero energy buildings through efficiency upgrades and in low carbon industry, for example. But on the other side, it's critical that that fiscal stimulus being mobilized to support our economies isn't invested in perpetuating high carbon, environmentally damaging activities, like for example, fossil fuel based uh, infrastructure or even incentives for high carbon industries like aviation. All right, 
thank you for explaining to us what green recovery means. And I think it's very important to note that uh, with the vaccine insight and, you know, especially with the developed countries starting to vaccinate like the UK, um, New Zealand, for example, and, and the US is also uh, having vaccines inside, I think there's a lot of talk about where the money is going. Um, and I've heard that Canada is also trying to uh, to invest more in greener technologies after COVID. So do we see any countries who are kind of like a model in investing in a greener technology or in a greener economy post-COVID? Yeah, so there's obviously, like you say, there's been lots of uh, different activities from countries around the world. Um, and again, very helpfully, the uh, the UN Emissions Gap Report that just came out last week helpfully synthesised or summarised all the information from all the different countries and what was going on around the world uh, and produced a sort of a scorecard uh, to see which country was faring best. Unfortunately, <laughs> of the money announced so far, only about a quarter of this enormous fiscal stimulus has been targeted to what could be called green or, or decarbonisation goals. Um, now, it should be said that obviously this, this sort of immediate phase of the recovery packages is, is really sort of focused on keeping economies going. And so obviously, you know, uh, supporting employment and so on. And so um, the UN expect that the next phase of the uh, COVID-19 recovery may be shifted towards sort of more longer term investment strategies. But it, if you look at what's going on now, about a quarter of the overall stimulus is aligned with decarbonisation. And the, 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 there are four countries which really stand out as the leaders, um, and that is uh, South Korea uh, with its Green New Deal, which maybe I'll talk a little bit more about later, uh, France, Germany, and the UK. Um, so it's not a it's not a sort of completely rosy picture because all of those four countries are also allocating some of their fiscal stimulus to, if you like, old, dirty uh, industries, the fossil fuel industries and so on, which we need to move away from. But but generally, those those four have got more more money invested in green stuff than in, let's say, older brown stuff. OK, um, and you, you've mentioned South Korea, France, Germany and the UK, and we know that the UK is actually hosting COP26, uh, which was postponed from this year to next year, and it's uh, going to be in Glasgow. And, you know, we've heard about uh, the, the key themes that the UK leadership in COP is trying to push forward. And a lot of these are green technologies, for example, electric vehicles. It's something that they said they wanted to push uh, for other countries to continue to invest in. So what what is the green recovery program in the UK and how is the UK doing in terms of investing in, in this kind of green economy? Yeah, so it's been quite a, an interesting last sort of three to six months because you rightly point out the UK is hosting uh, the big international climate change conference. It was supposed to be obviously this November, but it got delayed till next November. Um, and I think also coupled with the dynamics of, of Brexit, the, the UK has been keen to sort of show its leadership, uh, not just uh, nationally, but also on a global stage. So there's been a whole host of different policy announcements coming out over the last um, three to six three to six months. Um, and these were consolidated, I think, about a month ago in what the government called um, their 10 point 
Green Industrial Revolution Plan. Um, so this was, as it's as it sounds, a 10 point plan of essentially investment strategies in low carbon infrastructures and technologies. So as an example, there were major announcements on offshore wind. So an intentional an intention to quadruple our offshore wind potential in the next 10 years. Uh, there was also a commitment on nuclear. Uh, to advance nuclear, both in terms of large scale nuclear plants, but also uh, this concept of what are called small modular nuclear reactors, so smaller scale nuclear plants uh, that might be more flexible and rapid to build. There were announcements uh, on uh, the use of hydrogen and also the use of carbon capture uh, in industry. Um, there were announcements on electric vehicles, big commitment to uh, boost electric vehicle manufacturing, as you mentioned. Uh, there were also announcements on public transport, cycling, walking infrastructure to try and support that, and also on uh, making our homes and our public buildings uh, dramatically more efficient. And that includes, for example, a shift, a fairly rapid shift from gas boilers, which is how most UK homes are heated, to um, low carbon forms of heating like heat pumps. Um, so a sort of a, a package of strategic announcements across the different sort of technologies in transport, in buildings and in industry. And the sort of general view, if you look at kind of how it went down, uh, both in the media, but also in expert bodies like, for example, the Committee on Climate Change, which advises the government, I think the sort of simplistic report cards was along the lines of, good but needs to do more so it sort of was pushing many of the right buttons but i think that the, the, the sense was that the magnitude of investment behind those commitments wasn't yet sufficient to keep the uk on track to its own net zero pathway okay so despite the many investments that the uk is currently uh, doing for this green technology and green economy, it seems like there is more opportunity for the UK to invest in other technologies uh, that will help lead it to net zero targets. And so earlier as well in your introduction, you mentioned about, you know, the kind of research that you do about the technologies that can help us lead to net zero. And so in your own research, um, can you tell us about the kinds of technology and maybe infrastructures that can help us in this green recovery? Um, and can you give us maybe some examples? Yes, absolutely. So we look, this was a, a study that came out early this year um, in which we looked historically at a very wide range of energy uh, and low carbon solutions for uh, supplying energy, for providing mobility in cities, uh, for heating buildings um, and so on. And what we did is we looked at all of these different options on a, on a continuum from what we called the very granular end to the very lumpy end. So what we mean by the granular end are technologies or solutions which are relatively small in size, uh, low in cost uh, and modular. So they tend to scale by replicating. So think about a solar panel, for example, or think about an e-bike, an electric bike. On the very other end of the spectrum, the very lumpy technologies and infrastructures are very large in size, high in cost, and they're not divisible. They don't have that modular divisible characteristic. So they tend to scale by getting bigger and bigger. 
so think about, for example, nuclear power plants as a way of supplying energy or, you know, long range jet aircraft as a way of providing mobility. So we looked at a whole, you know, dozens and dozens of different energy technologies and compared their performance on a whole range of characteristics. So um, very briefly, we found um, that the more granular technologies have nine important advantages over the more lumpy technologies. So the granular technologies, they deploy faster, so they get to market faster. They're less risky for investors, so there's less cost overruns, there's less delays and so on. And they also um, reduce in cost and improve in performance faster. So this is called learning in the academic literature. Now these first three, so this speed, low risk and rapid improvement are all critical for rapid transformation or rapid progress on decarbonisation. And this is exactly what we need within this green recovery concept. So there's quite a good tie in between what we found and the green recovery. So the second set of three advantages of granular technologies that we found are all related to something called lock-in. So in energy systems, you tend to have this characteristic of lock-in, which is essentially an inertia to change. And there's all sorts of reasons why uh, our systems are relatively slow to change. But we need rapid change to make progress on climate change. Um, and so we found that granular technologies are shorter lived, so they turn over, they cycle more quickly. They're less complex, so they're easier to sort of remove and plug back in to systems. And they also create more efficiency opportunities. So this basically makes the system more efficient overall. And all of these characteristics help escape lock-in. And just finally, the three remaining advantages of energy are all to do with the kind of social and political legitimacy of rapid action on climate change. So we found that granular technologies are more equitably distributed, so more people benefit from them. We found they create more net jobs, and this is obviously critical for the green recovery. And finally, we found that they pay back higher returns on investments for every public pound invested in their research and development. So these were these nine advantages of granularity which we found in our historical research. Thank you. So uh, with what you've explained, it seems like granular technologies is something that, um, that we can definitely take uh, advantage of, especially when we invest in the green recovery. And how do you think the UK uh, measures up in terms of granularity vis-a-vis uh, -vis their stimulus package and, you know, the, the, their net zero plans? Yeah, so, it, so we, we, we looked at exactly, we took, we took all the um, announcements and uh, spending commitments and so forth that the UK government have, have uh, done in the last uh, three to six months and essentially evaluated them against this granularity criterion. So is the UK government plan focused on large, lumpy, big mega projects as the solution, both to the economic recession and to the climate change challenge? Uh, or are they more focused on this sort of distributed portfolio of highly granular options? So, um, I mean, just to give you an example in the UK's portfolio, either end of the spectrum, they announced 
uh, something called the Green Homes Grant, which was a two billion pound package to support energy efficiency measures in buildings. Um, and these energy efficiency measures are quite granular. So they range from insulation and new windows and so forth. So in the order of hundreds or thousands of pounds uh, up to, for example, heat pumps, which might be you know, somewhere below 10,000 pounds. So that's a fairly granular type of investment distributed across large numbers of, of buildings. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, they announced um, 140 million support for hydrogen and carbon capture and storage industrial clusters. So this is a way of trying to continue uh, burning fossil fuels for energy while capturing the carbon dioxide from that combustion processes and burying it uh, while also generating hydrogen as a clean fuel for use in uh, heating or in industrial processes. But this is quite a large scale, lumpy industrial type uh, investment. So that would be an example at the at the lumpy end. So we took there were, there were about uh, 10 different uh, policy streams that we analysed in total. Um, and we found overall that actually, certainly in the buildings, what they were trying to do in buildings, uh, making our homes more efficient, for example, and what they're trying to do in transport, pushing the transition from petrol and diesel vehicles to electric vehicles, that actually the bulk of the government's investment plans were fairly granular or were targeted at fairly granular technologies. Um, it was only really in the industrial sector where there was emphasis on some big kind of lumpy solutions like hydrogen and carbon capture and storage and also direct air capture of CO2 at an industrial scale. So not bad overall. Oh, wow. OK, that's actually good news. It seems like the UK is heading towards the right direction in terms of investing in granular technologies. And can we compare this maybe to other countries that you've mentioned earlier, like maybe South Korea? Yeah, so South Korea is a really interesting example because it was really one of the few countries after the global financial crisis in 2007, 2008, uh, which allocated uh, a large part of its stimulus money back then to low carbon technologies. Um, and again, this time round, we see South Korea, I would say, really is the leader worldwide in this sort of green recovery approach. So they announced back in the summer, they announced something called the Korean uh, New Deal, which was um, about $140 billion equivalent investment in, in green, but also digital uh, technology and digital transformation. So if you just look at the green part of that, which is around $62 billion, uh, so you know, massive amounts of, of fiscal stimulus, their plan is really focused quite heavily on these granular technologies. So solar, and wind in the power system, massive programs to install solar, both throughout uh, homes and office buildings and also public buildings. Uh, smart meters for introducing essentially digital uh, information flows into the energy system and also what they call microgrids. So much smaller scale power system solutions rather than giant national Transmission systems, uh, microgrids at a more decentralized community level. They also, like the UK, big push behind electric vehicles um, and electric vehicle recharging stations, which can also be, if you think about it, highly distributed around our communities, like a lamppost can be a charging station. You don't need large out of town petrol stations because electricity is clean. 
at the point of use. So really a very kind of impressive from a granularity perspective, the South Korean program is uh, is really impressive. And I think, you know, based on our, the, the important thing is that based on our evidence, uh, based on our uh, analysis of the evidence, a granular portfolio will have these benefits of deploying faster with lower risk, creating more jobs and more widely accessible benefits. And this is these are all critical ingredients of the green recovery post pandemic. Thank you. I think South Korea seems like a good example then as like one of the countries who are investing rightly in the proper technologies to help reduce their carbon emissions. And it's I don't think it's uh, surprising given how much innovation South Korea has made in the technology uh, technology industry in recent years. And I think, um, you know, we've been talking about countries and governments doing their you know, actions on how to reduce carbon emissions and can and continue reducing emissions even after COVID. But, you know, a lot of our listeners, a lot of our audience, they always ask, what is our role in all of this? You know, as citizens, as individuals, as household members or as consumers, do our individual actions actually matter? Is there something we can do in our everyday lives that can help in this green recovery? <laughs> I mean, yeah, yes, uh, unquestionably that there is. Um, I mean, it's worth sort of taking a, a, a step back in a way and, and sort of thinking about this, this really um, incredibly unusual and anomalous year that we've had. There was a really a, a quote that really struck home uh, with me from very early on, actually, it was back in March by a journalist called Gabby Hinsliff, who, who, who said, this crisis could end up being an event that throws everything high enough into the air that some of it never returns to Earth. And it sort of captures this idea that we've heard repeatedly throughout the year about despite this being, you know, horrifically uh, uh, painful and uh, and causing a lot of suffering and inequality and unemployment, there is also this sense that this is a, a, a strange, unexpected window of opportunity to sort of rethink uh, aspects about how we uh, organise and manage our daily lives. Um, now, in the spring, the UK Climate Assembly, this assembly of randomly selected citizens who are invited to sort of think about and deliberate about climate change and our decarbonisation targets over, a, I think, a six month period. Um, you know, came out with really strong recommendations, which really captured the sense that people are really up for this, like people are really uh, engaged and committed to um, this, this, this climate change challenge, which ultimately could in the long run have enormous benefits for our society uh, in terms of cleaner air, cleaner energy systems, healthier cities and so on. So there is so much we can do. There's so much we can do as citizens through our political activity and our social activity uh, there's so much we can do as community members through organizing uh, you know grassroots activities to support action on climate change i think there's so much we can do as people just keeping talking about this like do not let this subject fade into the background or be squeezed out by other uh, priorities it's so important that we keep focused on climate change um, but also at a very practical level a lot of the sorts of technologies we've been discussing and the sorts of infrastructures we've been discussing involve people like solar panels do not magically get put on roofs. They get put there by people uh, making those investment decisions. And similarly, electric vehicles do not magically appear 
on our roads. They get put there because people decide to take the risk and go for it. Um, and so just maybe as a, as a sort of final comment, the UK Committee on Climate Change, which advises the government on decarbonisation, is increasingly emphasising the role of people uh, in the journey ahead. So their recent analysis, very recent analysis, uh, found that, for example, almost half of the emission reductions that they see as required on the road to net zero uh, require essentially consumer choices like uh, buying electric vehicles or buying heat pumps. Now, of course, governments, markets and businesses need to be aligned with and support these activities. This isn't just a story about consumers will solve the problem. Uh, we're all we're all very much in this together. But but we, as, as, as I said, as consumers, as citizens and as people, are fundamentally part of this story. And I, and I would maybe just in, as a final kind of comment, just encourage people to perhaps try something that they haven't tried before, which could result in reducing their own uh, carbon footprint, like give stuff a go. The future will be a, a story of change and we need to be uh, part of that story. Oh, thanks for that. I think that's very inspiring because I think a lot of times, you know, we think the problem is kind of too big um, and sometimes it kind of immobilizes us into action, thinking that, you know, what can we actually do? But I think your answers there will help us uh, inspire a lot of people into doing everyday actions as well that can reduce their carbon emissions. And I think just to, just to end this program, just to end this episode on a high note, um, what are your hopes for a post-COVID world? <laughs> Gosh, <I'm, laughs> this could be a whole new, <laughs> a whole other podcast, Renee. But I would say I, I, to, to sort of boil it down to one main hope is that I, I really hope we as a, a, a national and a global uh, community demonstrate the capacity to learn from what's happened this last year and to kind of enshrine some of that learning into a new course, a new better course for our future development, which definitely and obviously helps us recover rapidly from this huge economic and social shock, uh, but also helps us make more rapid progress towards um, tackling climate change, because I think this will have huge benefits both in the near and the long term. Well, thank you for joining us today, Charlie, and I hope our listeners have learned a thing or two about how we can invest in a greener economy post-COVID. And so the question is, are we going to take advantage of this opportunity to recreate our economies, or are we going to let it slip by? Thanks for listening to us today, and we hope to see you in our next episode of the Tindle Talks.